What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. In a world where twerking seems almost demure given some of the moves featured on today's TikTok, it's a bit difficult to fathom a time and place in which a dance could be viewed as a moral threat let alone one that would ultimately instigate social and political upheaval. But it happened, and it took the form of a dance and a song that goes like this. I'm Steve Greenberg, and on the next couple of episodes of Speed of Sound, we'll be telling the story of the controversial dance move that proved to be the starting gun for what we think of as the 60s, as we explore the swivel-filled craze known as the twist. The world remembers the twist as a dance that swept America in the 1960s, but the pelvic motion that forms the foundation of the twist goes way back to dances that were originally performed in the Congo and that enslaved Africans brought with them to America. On southern plantations, this particular dance move became known as ringin' and twistin', and during the 19th century, it made its way into minstrel shows under the name Grapevine Twisting. Then, in 1912, an African-American musician named Perry Bradford released a recording of a song called Mess Around, where he instructed listeners to do this dance where you stand in one spot nice and tight and twist around and twist around with all your might. And nearly those exact same instructions showed up a year later in a song called Ball in the Jack, which became very popular and which was covered by a whole slew of artists over the next few decades. Now, let's make something very clear right from the start. In the African-American community at that time, the term twist was a double entendre. 
which could mean a dance move, or it could also be a euphemism for sex. And in 1938, the great Jelly Roll Morton recorded a song called Winin' Boy Blues, which really played on that ambiguity. Mama, mama, look at sis. She's out on the levee doing the double twist. Over the years, the twist dance move mutated in the African-American community, and it showed up in dances like the Lindy Hop. which featured a breakaway section where the couple dancing separated and did their own moves, very often including a twisting motion before coming back together. The breakaway in the Lindy made it different from dances in the white community where traditionally only the feet and the shoulders moved. Of course, Elvis Presley broke that mold and famously rotated his pelvis on stage, which was considered very lewd when he performed the move on the Milton Berle TV show leading to major condemnation by the American press. Popular music has reached its lowest depths in the grunt and groin antics of one Elvis Presley. The TV audience had a noxious sampling of it on the Milton Berle show the other evening. Elvis, who rotates his pelvis, gave an exhibition that was suggestive and vulgar, tinged with the kind of animalism that should be confined to dives and bordellos. The Milton Berle show performance famously led to Elvis being filmed from the waist up, when he was on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1957. In the early 1950s, a man named Jojo Wallace, who was a member of a Philadelphia-based gospel group called The Sensational Nightingales, decided to write a song based on a dance that he remembered his sister doing when they were little kids back in Williamston, North Carolina. He and another group member, Bill Woodruff, composed this song called Let's Do the Twist, which included the lyrics, come on, baby, let's do the twist. But they knew that those lyrics were completely inappropriate for a gospel group to be associated with. So they decided to shop it to more mainstream R&B singers. And in 1957, they played it for a fellow Philadelphian named Joe Cook from the group Little Joe and the Thrillers. Now these guys were coming off a big hit song called Peanut. Little Joe and the Thrillers had also had a hit in the local Philadelphia black community with a dance record called Let's Do the Slop, which, like the twist, was a dance that you danced without touching. Well, then you slip, then you slop, then you slip, slop, slip. Little Joe and the Thrillers were thrilled at the prospect of recording Let's Do the Twist. But when they played the demo of the song for their record company, OK Records, it was rejected for being too suggestive, especially the background vocals that went up and down and up and down. So the Sensational Nightingales kept looking for someone to do the song. And late in 1957, they found themselves staying in the same hotel in Tampa with a big R&B singer named Hank Ballard. Now, Hank Ballard was, at that time, the king of suggestive records, or as they were more popularly called, dirty records. Hank Ballard's dirty records were massive hits for his label, King Records, in Cincinnati. The first one in 1953 was a song called Get It. So baby, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, you know I want to see you with it, with it, with it. 
Ballard recalled his label's reaction to his early hits in the 1992 documentary, Twist. The first song I wrote was a song called Get It. Get it, get it, get it, you know I want to see you with it. And you know what? We sold about 250,000 records, man. So what happened? The stockholders at King Records used to come through and pat me on my back, tell me what a great song. I say, Hank, write some more of those dirty lyrics, you know? So I, I came up with a song, man. Called Work With Me Annie. Work With Me was yet another euphemism for Have Sex With Me. And while the song was really scandalous at the time, it spent seven weeks at the top of the R&B chart. It even launched a series of sequel records, including one called Annie Had a Baby, which also hit number one. While Hank Ballard was having one massive R&B hit after another through 1955, his records never appeared on the pop chart at all. And he most certainly wasn't played on white radio stations. He was just too dirty. And then suddenly, the group hit a dry spell, and none of their records hit on any chart for the next three years. So, when the sensational Nightingales played Let's Do the Twist for Hank Ballard in that Tampa hotel, he was pretty certain that King Records was about to drop him as an artist. Hank figured that recording Let's Do the Twist might be just what he needed to land a new deal at another label. He went into a studio in Miami with a producer named Henry Stone to record a demo of Let's Do the Twist for VJ Records. Henry Stone, by the way, is a name that comes up repeatedly whenever the history of pop music crosses paths with Miami. I've mentioned him before on Speed of Sound, and he'll definitely appear again in future episodes. But anyway, Hank Ballard and his guitarist, Cal Green, while they were in the studio with Henry Stone, decided that while they liked the basic idea that the Sensational Nightingales had presented for Let's Do the Twist, the song really needed a different melody if it was going to be a hit. There are no existent recordings of the Sensational Nightingales version of the song, but here's the demo that Hank Ballard cut with Henry Stone. Now, while that was, by all accounts, a completely different melody from the Sensational Nightingale's version of the song, it was by no stretch of the imagination a new melody. What Hank Ballard and Cal Green did was they took the lyrics of Let's Do the Twist by the Nightingales and they put them over the melody from one of their own previous records, Is Your Love For Real. But this story goes even deeper, because the melody of Is Your Love For Real was actually lifted from a hit by the Drifters called What You Gonna Do. What you gonna do about a half past eight? What you gonna do about a half past eight? The authorship of that song was credited to Atlantic Records founder Amit Erdogan, but he never stepped forward to claim songwriting credit for the twist, because it turns out the melody on the Drifters song was borrowed in part from a gospel song, also called What You're Gonna Do, by a group called The Radio Four. 
Hank Ballard assumed that the demo he cut of Let's Do the Twist would get him a deal with VJ Records. But much to his surprise, Sid Nathan, the owner of King Records, told him, Hank, we still believe in you. And they weren't going to drop him after all. And so in November of 1958, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters found themselves in King Records' Cincinnati studios recording a very different version of the song than the one they did in Miami. And now it was simply called The Twist. Now, at that session, the group also recorded this melancholy ballad called Teardrops on Your Letter. Teardrops on your letter was a certain sign. Hank Ballard believed the twist was going to be a big hit. But it turns out the producer of that session at King Records, a man named Henry Glover, happened to be the writer of Teardrops on Your Letter. And he told the Midnighters in no uncertain terms that Teardrops on Your Letter was going to be the A-side of the single. Years later, Hank Ballard recalled how he kept begging King Records to flip the 45 over and promote the twist. And I kept telling man, I said, the monster's on the other side. Please turn that record over. You know, it's on. They just, I couldn't convince them. History would, of course, prove that Hank Ballard's instincts were correct. But the truth is that Teardrops on Your Letter was a pretty big hit. It made it all the way up to number four on the R&B chart, and it completely revived the Midnighters' career. Plus, since it wasn't one of those dirty records Hank was known for, it even managed to show up on the pop charts in the spring of 1959, which was a first for Hank Ballard. But while Teardrops on Your Letter was getting all the radio play, DJs at dances and record hops were turning the record over and playing the B-side. And just as Teardrops was reaching its peak on the R&B chart, the twist suddenly debuted on the chart as well. And even though it wasn't the side that was being promoted by the label, it made it all the way to number 16. And even after it dropped off the chart at the end of June, the twist kept on being played at dances and parties and on jukeboxes in African-American neighborhoods across the country. Now, the credits on the label of the Midnighters version of the twist listed Hank Ballard as the sole composer of the song even though the melody was lifted note for note from that earlier Midnighter song that Ballard and Cal Green had written together. And also, let's remember that most of the lyrics were courtesy of the sensational Nightingales, and they weren't listed as writers either. For their part, the Nightingales later on claimed they were actually okay with that, since they felt that being associated with this raunchy song would have damaged their career in the gospel world. But I'm not so sure I buy that. If that was the case... Why were they putting so much effort into pitching the song to R&B singers in the first place? Well, in any case, their reluctance to be associated with the twist turns out to have been a wise choice as their career continued successfully for decades. In fact, a version of the sensational Nightingales still performs today. And as for Cal Green, well, he wasn't okay with the situation at all. But Cal Green wasn't in any position to do anything about it because he was busted for drug possession in Texas in 1959 before the record became a hit, and he spent the next five years behind bars. Up next, Uptight America is unhinged by the tempestuous moves of the twist, inciting backlash. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. At about this time, America was reaching the tail end of the Eisenhower era. That dull, conformist period of gray flannel suits and jello molds, milkshakes and class rings. But there were signs that society was ready to bust out, anxious to toss off the shackles of conformity and reach for a higher form of ecstasy. The first sign of this yearning could be seen in the lifestyle of the beatniks, personified by the characters in Jack Kerouac's novel, On the Road, whose existentialist live-for-today rejection of the treadmill of suburban existence was shaped by the possibility of nuclear apocalypse that could happen at any moment and inspired by the experience of African-Americans who shut out the awfulness of the mainstream by instead turning to the pleasures of the moment. Hip-swiveling Elvis in 1956 was one of the first white performers to channel the sexuality of African-American dance in his stage act. You ain't nothing but a hound dog But by 1958, it seemed like all of middle America discovered the joys of swiveling their pelvises, having become entranced by the hula hoop fad, which is the nearest white America had come to the experience of doing the mess around or ball in the jack. You might even call the hula hoop the opening act for the twist. America's newest gift to the continent, the hula hoop craze, spreading like wildfire in lands already ravaged by rock and roll. Ron Mann, the filmmaker behind the great documentary, Twist, believes timing played a big part in the phenomenon. 
the world was changing towards a kind of a personal liberation, which is what led the twist to freeform dancing. First, releasing your partner and then mimetic dances, and then do your own thing, which is, you know, that kind of nuclear explosion that happens in the 60s. And it was a release from a kind of conformity and a kind of view of uh, a cookie cutter, you know, gray flannel suit society that was being pushed down everyone's throats. In November of 1959, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters did a 10-day run at the Royal Theater in Baltimore. They played in front of nearly exclusively black audiences who got a chance to witness the Midnighters' wild dance routine, which they did while they played the twist. Now, the Midnighters weren't dancing the twist on stage as the world would eventually come to know it. There wasn't even a specific dance called the twist at that time. But instead, they wiggled their hips and their upper legs while keeping both feet together, kind of like what audiences were instructed to do in that song, The Mess Around. The kids in the audience at the Royal Theater for those Midnighters gigs loved it, and they began to make their own adjustments to those Midnighters twist moves. And then they brought those moves back to their high schools, where they taught the moves to their friends. It was these kids in Baltimore that refined the twist and created the dance that eventually took the world by storm. A group of these kids then brought those moves to the set of the Buddy Dean Show. Stay tuned for the next big part of the Buddy Dean Show following station identification. Which was a daily music program on TV in Baltimore where local kids danced to records and performers came on the show to lip sync their latest hits in front of the studio audience and the kids watching at home live. Okay, here is the big dance of this season. Al Brown and his version of The Madison. Now, The Buddy Dean Show, like most TV dance shows of that period, did not have a racially integrated audience. The show practiced a policy that they referred to as separate but equal, although in reality, it was far from equal. The audience on The Buddy Dean Show consisted entirely of white dancers, except for one Monday per month when black kids were invited to come onto the show. Officially, this day was known as Special Guest Day. Among black kids in Baltimore, it went by the name Black Monday. And some white kids in Baltimore had racist names for it. By the way, you might recognize the state of affairs I'm describing on the Buddy Dean show as one of the main plot points in the movie Hairspray, which was directed by Baltimore native John Waters. In fact, John Waters based Hairspray's fictional TV dance party host, Corny Collins, on Buddy Dean. Nice white kids who like to lead the way. And once a month we have our ego day. And I'm the man who keeps it spinning round. Mr. Corny Collins with the latest, greatest, Baltimore. Once the black kids started doing the twist on the Buddy Dean show during special guest day, it caught on with the white kids who danced on the show as well. In early 1960, Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, a singer signed to a Philadelphia label called Swan Records, appeared on the Buddy Dean Show to promote his latest single, Way Down Yonder in New Orleans. After Freddie Cannon finished performing, Buddy Dean pulled him aside and said, watch these kids dance to this next song. And he played Hank Ballard's The Twist. He gave Freddie Cannon a copy of that record to bring back to Philadelphia to play for Dick Clark, the host of American Bandstand, the number one teen dance show in the whole country, which broadcast from Philadelphia. Hank Ballard tells the story of what happened when Dick Clark heard his record. 
He called Dick Clark and said, you should see these kids over there doing a dance called a twist. You know, it's the song by Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. So Dick said, I don't even want to hear it. I don't even want to hear it because I know it's another one of those little dirty records, you know. So Dick Clark suggested to Freddie Cannon, why don't you record it? I'll play your version. Well, of course, Dick Clark was willing to play a Freddie Cannon recording of the twist. Dick Clark was part owner of Swan Records. And Dick Clark featured the artist from that label on American Bandstand a lot. In fact, Freddie Cannon performed on American Bandstand more times than any recording artist in the show's history. He was on American Bandstand 110 times. But unfortunately for Freddie Cannon, Bernie Binnick, who was the principal owner of Swan Records, rejected the idea of the twist because he wanted Freddie to focus on promoting Way Down Yonder in New Orleans. Meanwhile, Hank Ballard heard about the kids dancing the twist on the Buddy Dean show, and he was more convinced than ever that his recording of the twist should have been a big sensation. So he went into the studio and recorded a new song called Finger Poppin' Time, which had the same beat as the twist and more or less the same melody. As soon as King Records put out Finger Pop in Time in May of 1960, it began to become popular. The kids on the Buddy Dean show were doing the twist to Finger Pop in Time, and so were some kids on American Bandstand, although Dick Clark instructed the cameras not to show them while they were doing that dance. Dick Clark was beginning to see a lot of potential in this twist dance, and his wheels were starting to spin. On June 22nd, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters appeared live on American Bandstand, and the audience twisting to finger poppin' time was out of control. So much so that King Records re-released Hank Ballard's recording of the twist, even though it was a year and a half old and finger poppin' time was shooting up the charts. When Hank Ballard's re-released single of the twist showed up on the chart in mid-July, all Dick Clark needed to do was get behind it, and it would have exploded. But that's not what Dick Clark did. Realizing how big the twist could be, Dick Clark wanted to control how it was presented, and by whom. And he most certainly didn't want the twist to just be another one of those dirty Hank Ballard records. Importantly, Dick Clark wanted the twist to be seen as something that originated on American Bandstand. Hi, this is Dick Clark, and it's time now for American Bandstand. Throughout the show's history, part of the mystique of American Bandstand was this idea that those white kids in the audience were making up the dances that they did. But in reality, they were usually learning those dances from black kids in their high school. Hank Ballard remembers. White kids were trying to dance like black kids, but they had a weird dancing where they didn't move the hips, <laughs> especially on Bandstand and, and those type of shows. And if you dance without moving your hips, it just ain't happening. Ron Mann, in his Twist movie, interviewed some of the white Philadelphia teenagers who introduced dances on bandstand in the late 50s and early 60s, and this is how they recalled those days. Actually, it was kind of a surprise when he asked us on air where you learned the dance. We didn't really know quite how to handle it. It wasn't that he said you can't say black people. He didn't say that. It's just at the time that he asked that question, we... We didn't really want to say that, oh, black people taught us to us. We always thought, of course, they definitely did it better. 
no. Mm. <laughs> but of course, we received all the fame for that and got all the credit for it, you know, mm. in our letters from really our unfair, fans. Huh? No, it's, it wasn't fair, really, when mm. you think about it. At that time, you weren't thinking that you would, you, where you really stealing got the danger. You, you, weren't th- you didn't think you were yeah. stealing anything, right, absolutely. Mm. But we, we were. Now, I mentioned earlier that Dick Clark was a part owner of Swan Records, but that was far from the only music company he had a stake in at the beginning of the 60s. He actually had an interest in 33 different music companies, and he owned publishing rights to 160 songs, most of which he acquired without having to put up any money. And needless to say, if your song was owned by Dick Clark, you got a lot of exposure on American Bandstand. But Dick Clark's days owning music companies came to an abrupt end in May of 1960 when he was asked to testify in front of Congress as part of a payola investigation, which involved allegations that DJs on radio stations were playing records in exchange for cash paid by record companies. The investigation was partially instigated by the major record labels, who had mostly stayed out of the rock and roll business in those early days and who wanted to regain their dominance of the record market by putting those independent labels who were releasing rock and roll records back in their place. By the way, the independent labels definitely were paying DJs for airplay. But until after the payola hearings, that actually wasn't illegal. And neither was Dick Clark's ownership of all those companies and copyrights. Anyway, by the time Dick Clark testified before Congress, he'd been given an ultimatum by ABC Television, the network that broadcast American Bandstand. He could either get out of the music business or get out of the television business. Dick Clark wisely chose to remain host of American Bandstand, and he divested himself of all of his music holdings. One of the companies Dick Clark sold off his interest in, Cameo Parkway Records, was also based in Philadelphia. Even though he no longer had a financial stake in the company, Dick Clark remained close with Cal Mann and Bernie Lowe, the owners of Cameo Parkway, who, until the divestment, had been Dick Clark's business partners in numerous, very lucrative music enterprises. Cameo Parkway specialized in putting out records that jumped on the bandwagon of whatever was happening in pop music at any given moment. And with a built-in promotional vehicle, in the form of airplay on American Bandstand, they saw a lot of success, especially with a teen idol named Bobby Rydell, who, like Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, appeared on American Bandstand a lot. After Hank Ballard performed on Bandstand, Dick Clark called Bernie Lowe and told him that if he could find someone to record a version of the twist, American Bandstand would really get behind it. Bernie Lowe suggested a young local singer with whom Dick Clark was already pretty familiar, although he was by no means a star. His name was Ernest Evans. The world knows him as Chubby Checker. Up next, how Chubby Checker got that name and said hips around the world in motion. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility Dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Actually, it was Dick Clark's wife who gave Ernest Evans the name Chubby Checker in the first place. You see, in late 1958, Dick Clark and his wife, Barbara, had the idea of recording a special Christmas record as a holiday gift for their friends. They wanted a singer who could imitate a few of the biggest rock and roll singers of the day, like Elvis, Little Richard, and Fats Domino, all singing Jingle Bells. Bernie Lowe at Cameo Parkway suggested this local teenager named Ernest Evans, who'd come by the office a few times trying to get a record deal. He had a big voice, and apparently he was really good at imitating other singers. The kid was an unlikely recording artist, to say the least. He was kind of overweight and had a day job as a chicken plucker at Henry Coltapiano's Poultry Shop on South 9th Street in Philly. So they brought Ernest Evans in to make this Christmas record. And while he was in the studio doing an imitation of Fats Domino singing Jingle Bells, Barbara Clark walked in. She heard him singing, took one look at him and said, you're chubby. You're chubby checker, like Fats Domino, because you're doing one of his songs. The name stuck, and based on that musical Christmas card, Chubby Checker got a record deal with Cameo Parkway. And Henry Coltapiano left the poultry business to become Chubby Checker's manager. And while he was at it, he changed his name to Henry Colt. The first thing Cameo Parkway did with Chubby Checker was send him into the studio to record another song where he imitated popular rock and rollers. This time, they were all going to be singing Mary Had a Little Lamb. The record was called The Class, and it just barely made it into the top 40 in the summer of 1959. Since Chubby Checker was so good at doing impressions, the owners of Cameo Parkway figured 
he'd be the perfect person to do a Hank Ballard imitation on this cover version of the twist that Dick Clark was requesting. And so in late June, he went into the studio with a producer named Dave Appel. Appel assembled a group of great Philadelphia session players who sat around a record player in the studio playing the Hank Ballard version of the twist again and again, studying every aspect of it so they could copy it. But they didn't exactly copy it. They added a couple of new elements that proved to be very significant. Now, to this day, there are a lot of R&B purists out there who are offended by the very idea of Chubby Checker covering Hank Ballard's record, The Twist, instead of letting Hank Ballard have the hit with the song he wrote. But putting the issue of fairness aside for a second, you can make a pretty compelling argument that Chubby Checker's version of The Twist is actually a much better pop record. It's younger sounding, it's more exuberant, it's shinier, and certainly it sounds a lot more modern than the Hank Ballard record. There are a couple of concrete reasons for this. For starters, while Hank Ballard's twist opens with a very traditional sounding R&B piano, the Chubby Checker record immediately hits you with a more bombastic opening. This rumbling saxophone that kicks things off like there's a jet plane zooming by overhead and it keeps wailing underneath the vocals, driving the record forward. And then, even though both records are essentially the same tempo and are played in the same time signature, the drum beat on Chubby Checker's record has a completely different feel. It feels faster, more intense. Ellis Tollin, who drummed on the session, is playing these straight eighth notes on his cymbals throughout the whole record, which gives it this extra layer of energy that simply does not exist on the Hank Ballard record. By way of illustration, let's compare the feel of the two records and contrast how the listener is experiencing the two grooves. Here's Hank Ballard. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Here's Chubby Checker. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Most importantly, though, is the performance of Chubby Checker himself. He may have set out to mimic Hank Ballard, but, well, on this record, he can't help but sound like a kid having the time of his life. Chubby Checker probably knew that this was his big chance, and if everything went right, his life was about to change. And he sounds like a young man in a hurry to make that happen. Hank Ballard's vocal, on the other hand, is a bit more relaxed and bluesy. And then there's the way the vocal is recorded. Chubby Checker's voice is pretty powerful to start with, but it's drenched in this reverb on this record that makes it sound like it's just stretching into infinity. Make no mistake about it, Hank Ballard's twist was a great 50s R&B record. But Chubby Checker's twist is the sound of the 1950s turning into the 60s as you're listening. It's the sound of America transitioning from those dreary Eisenhower years to JFK and Camelot. Chubby Checker turned out to be the perfect salesman for a dance that, introduced by someone else, might have been rejected as lewd. And the deal with the public was sealed the very first time Chubby Checker did the twist on TV. After playing the record incessantly on American Bandstand for a couple of weeks, 
Dick Clark introduced Chubby Checker to the world on August 6th, 1960. But he didn't do it on American Bandstand. No. Dick Clark put Chubby Checker on his weekly Saturday night primetime ABC program, The Dick Clark Show, which got a much bigger audience. Pretty frightening thing. It's sweeping the country all over the place. Hottest dance sensation in the last four years, a thing called The Twist. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Chubby Checker. When Chubby Checker did the twist on the Dick Clark show that night, it was a streamlined version of the dance, less freewheeling than what the black kids in Baltimore were doing. But that was the appeal of it. It was a dance that anyone could do and have a great time doing it. The twist that Chubby demonstrated that August night on the Dick Clark show was the epitome of simplicity. No matter how awkward or uncoordinated you were, you could finesse your way through it. And so, while Chubby Checker may have been copying Hank Ballard's record, his real contribution to the twist was formalizing the dance into the version that the world has known for the past 60 years. And Chubby Checker even figured out how to describe the twist in a way that anyone could understand. I showed people my concept of what the twist was to me. You remove your hands from your partner, putting out a cigarette at both feet, wiping off your bottom with a towel, to the beat of music. People understood that. You didn't have to be a great dancer to do a twist. You just needed to, you, all you need to do those little steps and a little imagination, and you were home. That was the success of it. Simple, it's easy to do, and it has a beat. That was it. Earlier, I suggested we put the issue of fairness aside for a second, but now let's deal with it. Here's Hank Ballard recalling the first time he heard Chubby Checker's recording of the twist. I was in Miami during the time, uh, in 1960. I was doing, taking a swim, and I heard this record twist blasting across white radio, big pop station there in Miami. I said, wow, I'm finally getting some white airplay. I'm going to be a superstar. And it was Chubby Checker. <laughs> I thought it was me, you know. He had, Chubby had done such a beautiful clone of my record, you know. And I'm grateful that he did. Because it, it takes a master to emulate my sound. And he did it, you know. I, I was, look, I, I thought it was me, so help me in God until almost the end of the record. If Chubby, checked, if Chubby hadn't recorded the twist, it wouldn't have been as big as it is today. That's for sure. So what was it about Chubby Checker that enabled him to perform a dance that was the definition of what white America considered dirty up until that time, gyrating your pelvis, and get away with it? Well... Chubby Checker possessed some qualities that made him a much more likely candidate for mainstream stardom than Hank Ballard. He was gregarious, wholesome-looking. He was this lovable teddy bear with a big open smile, and now let's be brutally honest, he was a non-threatening, desexualized, light-skinned African-American. Hank Ballard, for his part, had a much harder edge. He exuded that streetwise quality that today we might call gangsta. For white America, Hank Ballard doing the twist was dirty. Chubby Checker, not so much. And Hank Ballard himself understood pretty quickly that in Chubby Checker, the twist had found the ideal ambassador. So he embraced it. Because as the writer of the song, it was in Hank Ballard's financial interest to have that record become as big as possible. And so he took some solace as he watched Chubby Checker twist his way into history. But it still hurt and it speaks volumes about America in that period that Dick Clark wouldn't give Hank Ballard a chance. Dick Clark, for his part, understood he denied Hank Ballard his big shot at mainstream stardom. 
when the Chubby Checker version was released, Hank Ballard's twist was flying up the chart. But with all the support Chubby Checker was getting on TV from Dick Clark, it was no contest. Hank Ballard's twist stalled at number 28 while Chubby Checker was rocketing to the top of the chart. Dick Clark must have felt some pangs of guilt, though, because he not only heavily featured finger popping time on Bandstand, driving it into the national top 10, but he also did the same for Hank Ballard's next single, Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, turning that into another top 10 pop single. The week after Chubby Checker performed the twist live on The Dick Clark Show, the record exploded. By mid-August, it was in the top 10, where it percolated for six weeks before eventually hitting number one the third week of September. And although it only spent a single week at number one, it ended up spending three months in the top 10, which was a very long time for a record back then. Now, as it happened, the top 10 run of the twist coincided with the final stages of the 1960 presidential election and John F. Kennedy's defeat of Richard Nixon. And well, Eldridge Cleaver, a prominent African-American writer and political activist who would later in the decade become one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, speculated that perhaps this was more than a coincidence. Here's Eldridge Cleaver reading from his book, Soul on Ice. It is significant that the twist and the hula hoop came into the scene in all their fury at the close of the Eisenhower and the dawn of the Kennedy era. It could be interpreted as a rebellion against the vacuous Eisenhower years. It could also be argued that the same collective urge that gave rise to the twist also swept Kennedy into office. I shudder to think that given the closeness of the final vote in 1960, Richard Nixon might have won the election in a breeze if he had persuaded one of his ultra-feminine daughters, not to mention ultra-pat, to do the twist in public. Chubby Checker danced the twist relentlessly on every TV show he could appear on for the next two years, which was absolutely crucial to the success of the dance. For a big man, Chubby Checker was incredibly light on his feet, and he made the twist look easy and fun, and that was the key. It was actually reported in the press that he twisted on TV so much, he lost 35 pounds. And even after Chubby Checker's record fell off the chart by the end of 1960, the twist remained massive with teens on the dance floor. Here's Chubby Checker speculating on the reason for the twist's popularity. It was hips, and that was nasty in 1959, 1960. They don't do things like that. I mean, we just got over Elvis Presley doing a gyrating. We just got over kids going crazy, dancing Little Richard. Tutti Frutti all Rudy. I mean, now we got this, this very suggestive movement. Of course, the twist was met with predictable condemnation from some quarters of adult society. The well-known British journalist Beverly Nichols, visiting the U.S., wrote, I'm not easily shocked, but the twist shocked me, half Negroid, half Manhattan, and when you see it on its native heath, Wholly frightening. The essence of the twist, the curious, perverted heart of it, is that you dance it alone. Now, the twist was instantly appealing to teenagers in part because it allowed them to cut loose in a way that met with some adult disapproval. But also, the twist didn't even require a partner. So a boy didn't need to muster the courage to ask a girl to dance. And a girl didn't need to wait to be invited to the dance floor. 
and she wouldn't have to follow the lead of her partner either, hinting just a wee bit at the women's liberation movement, which was just around the corner. And teenagers facing each other on the dance floor, shaking their pelvises at each other? Now that was previously unheard of in white America. It was a real violation of the accepted sexual code. And as such, it began to shake teenagers loose from their restrictive cultural moorings, providing an early glimpse of the revolution in youth culture that marked the rest of the decade. By late 1960, with the twist taking up residence on the dance floor, there were a few unsuccessful attempts by other recording artists to jump on the twist bandwagon. For instance, a then unknown producer named Phil Spector went into the studio with a group called the Top Notes to make a record called Twist and Shout, which quickly sank without a trace. But that song would, of course, achieve prominence a bit further down the line. As for Chubby Checker himself, well, he followed up the twist in early 1961 with another number one record, Pony Time, which instructed listeners to try a new dance. Like the twist, Pony Time was a cover, this time of a record by an R&B singer named Don Covey. And once again, Chevy Checker's cover version, with all of Dick Clark's TV support, stopped the original in its tracks. Don Covey's record stalled at number 60. Incidentally, it turns out that Pony Time's melody borrowed from yet another Hank Ballard song called Sexy Ways. By the summer of 1961, Chubby Checker was back to doing the twist. Special bulletin, the twist dance craze sweeps the world. The song and the singer that started the most explosive dance craze in a generation are featured in Teenage Millionaire. Let's Twist Again was a song written especially for Chubby Checker by Cameo Parkway's Cal Mann and Dave Appel. And it was another big top 10 record in the U.S. In the U.K., Let's Twist Again was even bigger than The Twist. It went all the way to number one over there. Now, musically, Let's Twist Again really bore very little resemblance to The Twist. While Chubby Checker's cover, like Hank Ballard's original, had its foundations in the blues, Let's Twist Again was pure pop in the Tin Pan Alley sense of the word. Still, it did the trick. It provided instant nostalgia for teenagers who, at parties and in clubs across the USA, were still twisting up a storm. Let's Twist Again even won the first Grammy Award ever given out in the category Best Rock and Roll Recording. Next time on Speed of Sound, we tackle part two of the incredible story of the twist as the song roars back to number one a year after it slipped off the charts and becomes bigger than ever, this time finding popularity with the grown-ups. 
And a New York City dive bar with ties to the mob shoots to the front page of the tabloids and the top of the music charts, all by adding new flavor and spin to the twist craze. Plus, JFK and Jackie are caught twisting in the White House. Or were they? Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Speed of Sound would like to extend a big thanks to filmmaker Ron Mann for his permission to use excerpts from his sensational documentary, Twist. I highly recommend checking it out. I'm Steve Greenberg. Until next time, keep listening for music that moves you. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You ever get that feeling like the concrete jungles closing in? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to chase your own dinner, or just breathe clean air. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there waiting, and finding your piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, price, location. They've got it all. No matter what kind of wild dream you're chasing, land.com can help you find the ground to make it a reality. So quit dreaming. Head over to land.com, find your open space, and get out there.